In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Well, hello and welcome to episode 35 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And after all the excitement of the last couple of weeks of the Scottish elections and a bit of a serious tone for our episode on the Scottish elections, we've decided to just go and relax and enjoy ourselves. So today we're going to be talking about cheese and wine, Scottish cheese and wine. So, Liz, what have you got to say about cheese and wine? Well, when you think about cheese and wine, you maybe think more about France and Mediterranean countries. But believe it or not, we are up there in terms of the produce that we're producing. And when you think of Scottish cheese, you might think of a slice of cheddar on top of an oat cake served up on Burns Night or maybe St Andrew's Day. But Scotland's cheese and other dairy products like butter and ice cream are actually up there on a par with the quality of our Scots seafood, our game and our beef. From our wonderful traditional Scottish cheddar cheese produced in large industrial creameries to a fantastic range of handcrafted artisan and farmhouse cheeses, you're spoilt for choice and you can enjoy a variety of exceptional quality cheeses all year long. Traditionally, every crofter steading would have had a milk cow and any spare milk left over after the cream had been ladled off to churn into butter, it would have been left on a sunny windowsill or by the range to stay warm. And natural cultures in the milk would slowly produce lactic acid, turning the milk sour and causing it to curdle, eventually separating to form a solid curd and a liquid whey. Little Miss Muffet, eat your heart out. When this mixture is placed in a muslin bag and left to drain, with the addition of a little salt, you have the simplest of Scottish cheeses called Crowdy. Crowdy is a crumbly white cheese with a texture a bit like whipped mousse. Scotland's most ancient cheese It's thought to date back to Viking times and it's said that it was traditionally eaten before a keely to line the stomach before imbibing in a few drams. But it fell out of favour with the demise of crofting. Or maybe it was the advent of Iron Brew, if you've listened to one of our early episodes. <laughs> Until years later, in 1962, Susanna Stone, a housewife in Tain in Invernessshire, made too much and offered the surplus to a local grocer. It was an instant success and became the first artisan cheese produced by a family business, which is still going strong today, Highland Fine Cheeses. 
Today, several artisan cheesemakers produce their own crowdy, including Loch Arthur Creamery's Cranog, where simple crowdy is flavoured with herbs or peppercorns. The Connage Highland Dairy near Ardestir in Invernessshire, who won Best Scottish Cheese for their crowdy, which they say goes particularly well on scones with jam. Another popular traditional cheese is Cabock, where the soft buttery cheese is rolled in pinhead oats, and it's said to have been a recipe developed by one Mariotta de Il, born in 1429 to the chieftain of the MacDonald clan. She was responsible for adding cream to the crowdy and maturing it in barrels to create her chieftain cheese called Cabock. 75% butterfat, Cabock was something of a health hazard if overindulged, but her father seemed pleased enough with it. The characteristics of a cheese depend on the milk that it's produced from. Cow, ewe, goat or even buffalo, in the case of the mozzarella cheese which is made boglily farmsteading in Kirkcaldy Fife thanks to a crowdfunding venture in 2019. The breed of animal and its diet of grass and other feed are also crucial factors. And here in Scotland, the climate is particularly well suited to cheese making, with lots of rain. With the predominant wind direction from the northwest, the west coast of Scotland is too damp for reliable cereal crops, but the higher rainfall means the grass grows long and lush here. Ideal for the local breed of brown and white Ayrshire cows or the black and white Holstein Frisians. Both breeds are highly valued not only for their high milk yield, but also for their ability to forage on less favourable terrain and in poorer climatic conditions. Perfect for cheese production. So it's no coincidence that many of the large industrial creameries are located on the west coast of Scotland. Lockerbie, Stranraer and Campbelltown. While cream cheeses such as Crowdy and Cabock were left for a matter of days, traditionally the cheeses produced in the summer season had to be stored or matured through the winter, which caused them to harden and to produce a skin. Mature cheddars are left for six to nine months, and today Scottish cheddar accounts for 70 to 80% of the total output of Scottish cheese, due mainly to large-scale production but also handcrafted cheddars, such as St Andrew's Farmhouse cheddar. This buttery yellow cheese with a creamy texture is made from their own herd of Frisian Holstein cows and is aged for 9 to 12 months on a traditional cheddar recipe, with a few special touches which change it into a modern Scottish cheddar. You might associate cheddar with being a reddish-orange colour, This was because the milk used in production traditionally came from breeds of cows such as Jersey and Guernsey, naturally high in butterfat, but also fed on grass which was rich in beta-carotene. This orange pigment is transferred to the cow's milk and then to the cheese and was considered a mark of quality. So when inferior milks were used in the 17th century, cheesemakers began adding colouring such as saffron, marigold and carrot juice. Later, annatto, which is a pigment that comes from the seeds of a tropical plant, was used. And today, the St Andrews Cheese Company used this natural plant extract to colour their red Einster cheese, which is a dry, crumbly cheese flavoured with garlic and herbs. Einster is matured for two to four months, while mature Einster is aged for seven to nine months and has a stronger, more intense flavour. Some people say it's similar to Parmesan. All three take the name Einster from the local town of Anstruther in Fife, 
in which these cheeses are made. The Island Cheese Company on Arran uses a unique smoking technique for their cheddar. Oak shavings from Glenmorangie whiskey barrels are used to lightly permeate this creamy, crumbly Scottish cheese. Isle of Mull cheddar is crafted from the milk of a mixed herd of Frisians, Odd Ayrshire or Jersey and brown Swiss cows, and it's matured for 17 months in the farm cellars. The distinctive feature here is that their diet is supplemented in winter with the spent grain husks from the distillery at Tobermory. This is called draft, and it gives the Isle of Mull cheddar a slightly boozy hint, which some might like. Not pointing any fingers, Helen. It did win the gold medal for World Cheese Awards in 2011. Folks staying in the farm's holiday cottages can enjoy an indoor swimming pool heated with reclaimed heat from cooling the evening milk down and the air conditioning equipment used in the dairy. Scotland's particularly noted for Ayrshire Dunlop, a hard cheese similar to white cheddar that dates back to the 17th century when farmer's wife Barbara Gilmore in the Ayrshire village of Dunlop pioneered a process using unskimmed or sweet milk from Ayrshire cows. Her method produced a distinctly creamy texture and mellow nutty taste and was so widely copied that Dunlop soon became Scotland's equivalent of cheddar. Scotland has also developed a reputation for its blue cheeses and the one that has pioneered this revolution is the Lanark Blue, which has been called Scotland's spicy rich answer to Roquefort. Produced from unpasteurised used milk by Errington Cheese Limited in Lanarkshire, its creator, Humphrey Errington, is widely regarded as one of the key figures that fought off the authorities to keep unpasteurised cheese alive. Nowadays, his daughter Selina Cairns continues to make the cheese by hand with milk from the Hamley herd of 450 Lacon ewes, the same breed of sheep that's used to produce Roquefort. The milk is pumped straight into cheesemaking vats less than 20 metres away to preserve the flavour of the local terroir. The cheese then matures in cool, moist, traditional stone buildings to add to its unique flavour. But to end, I return to Highland Fine Cheeses, now run by Ruri Stone, son of Susanna Stone, who I explained earlier is credited with reinventing Crowdy. Until recently, Kabok, that soft buttery cheese rolled in pinhead oatmeal, was accounting for around 95% of sales. But her son Ruri diversified, and now the company is focused on mould-ripened cheese with brie, blue and washed rind styles. Thanks to astute marketing, these have now become some of Scotland's most recognisable cheeses. They include Morangi brie, smooth and creamy with a slightly sweet flavour, helped perhaps by its position next door to the Glenmorangi distillery. Ruri Stone has, by his own admission, a wicked sense of humour, and he's not afraid to be contentious. We've got a mouldy old dairy, so I thought we should focus on mouldy cheeses, is one of his quotes. <laughs> and when the company launched two washed rind cheeses three years ago, their names were certainly controversial, if not outright offensive. Minger, which is said to be one of the world's smelliest cheese which is why it's got the name Minger. It's said to have a pong on the nose, pure pleasure on the palate. Orange and anato washed rind with a deliciously oozy, creamy paste, mildly nutty and lemony, hinting of flavours of the farmyard, 
but becoming decadently pungent and runny when ripe. Another one, fat cow, is described as on the road to Gruyere, potholed like Emmental, buttery, nutty, sweety and milky, with a hint of orange fruits and dairy cow in the aroma. It caused something of a scandal with some retailers when he produced his new brands, and in particular their names, and Waitrose refused to stock them, saying we're a family supermarket, so we'd be concerned that this name might upset some customers. But as they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And when the article appeared in The Time, Stone admits with a chuckle that they were appalling name choices, but there's no such thing as bad publicity. And he's gone on to be a real trailblazer for artisan Scottish cheeses. Do you like your piece of Scottish cheese, Helen? Oh, I really do, Liz. And that was so interesting. And I just think that the Scottish cheese, when you go into the delicatessens now or even the supermarkets and look at the range of cheeses there, Scottish cheeses, they are rivaling so many of the, you know, what we would call the traditional continental type cheeses. I just love the ones that you met, you mentioned, the blues. I'm not so keen on the on the cabock. I find that a bit too thick and creamy. Bland. It's just I, I think it's just like butter. Yeah, really. Yes. Yes. I, I like the, the the ones that have got a bit of a punch. And you certainly mentioned a few there with, with punch. And I just take my hat off to all the farmers over the past sort of 20, 30 years who've diversified into cheese making, using their own herds, etc. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the poor farmers were, were struggling so much because the supermarkets were driving down the price of milk um, so much that they, they were struggling to make a living from the milk production. And also, if you're on a farm and there's several brothers, then there's not a livelihood to be made on a farm. So that's why they diversified. And so some of these, it's, it's brothers that have gone on to build up the cheese making side of things and make an extra income source for the farm. Yes, and you, you mentioned the Ainster cheeses. I've been to the farm there and they've got a wonderful coffee shop. So it's a really nice sort of lunch coffee stop. And you can see through from the shop the cheeses being made and also being stored. But I did hear, and I don't know how true it is, that the milk they use is from their own herd. So across the yard, the, the herd is milked. But it's got to then kind of go into a container that is part of the milk marketing to be checked and then emptied from the container to the other side of the yard to the cheese making processes. So it's there, there was something that was a few years ago. It might have changed, but maybe you know more about that, Liz. No, it's this was the death knell for for farm cheeses was the fact that milk had to be pasteurised. But uh, Nowadays, they can use unpasteurised milk as, as long as it's checked, as you say, Helen, to make sure that there's not a problem with it. And the Humphrey Errington fell foul of the law some years ago when it was said that there was listeria in his milk, but he challenged it. And it was found that this was a harmless strain of the listeria microorganism. And so, you know, he has really been a trailblazer as far as unpasteurised milk is concerned. I remember that case, Liz, because Dunsire Blue was, and the Lanark Blue, my favourite blue cheeses, because these are the ones I like, the ones that are really almost stingy, they've got so much punch, and I'm really upset that they might no longer be allowed to be, but well done, Humphrey. Yeah, and also another big important factor is that many of the supermarkets 
are now stocking the Scottish artisan cheeses, particularly Aldi's. So I love it that you can just, you don't need to go. I mean, of course, we've got these very high end cheese sellers across Scotland now, and that's fantastic because you have a really big range there. But you can actually just go into your local Aldi's and they are particularly stocking Scottish produce. So there's a wide range of Clava Breeze and Strathdon Blues that it's um, within the, the purse strings of everyone to get these these cheeses. I'm going to give a wee shout out to my friend's son-in-law, Mike, who, oh, quite a number of years ago was one of the buyers for Aldi in Scotland. And he was a farmer's son from Tain. So he knew all about the cheeses and the farming and things. So he persuaded Aldi to start really, really stocking Scottish produce. And so every time I see the Scottish labels in Aldi's, I always say, thank you, Mike, for setting the ball rolling for this. I have a link there too because Rudy Stone's sister shared a flat with my daughter in St Andrews. So we, 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 in Scotland, there's always a degree of connection. You can always find it. That's right. We're a small country and we know and we appreciate each other very much. <laughs> yeah. And when you go on holiday, you're always looking for that connection. Yes. You're always trying to find the connection. You're always, and it makes my day when I find it. <laughs> Well then, Helen, we've done enough discussion about cheese. I'm getting quite hungry here. But Humphrey Errington also developed a fermented wine drink made from the leftover whey when he was making his cheese. And this is an ancient Scottish drink traditionally called bland, but Errington called his falachin. So you can actually make a wine from the whey of the cheese. And so it's a good way of a good segue, as they would say, into your topic, <laughs> Helen. Yeah, well, that's that's very good. I didn't know that about the, making the, the wine from the whey. But you mentioned the weather, Liz, the weather being good for cheese because it, the wet allowed the grass to grow and the, the various animals milk, producing the milk could really benefit from that. But unfortunately, the weather in Scotland has proved not to be so good for grapes which is the traditional fruit that wine is made from. And we're also quite often asked, is it not too cold to grow wine grapes in Scotland? But people have tried and people are still trying. There have been some wineries in Scotland. The successful ones have adapted to the weather conditions and the, the type of fruit that grows in the weather. And some have started up and given their owners an interesting retirement and provided unique presents for friends and then stopped production. One such was the Chateau Hebrides. Donald Hope planted 20 black muscat vines, made some wine which he sold at the local farmer's market, where it was deemed to be quite tasty. But Donald retired for the second time, and the vineyard retired with him. And another startup was Chateau Largo, Christopher Trotter, who was a local chef and food writer, planted 200 hybrid grapevines in Fife in Scotland. And his first vintage was available in 2015. But sadly, his efforts were thwarted by a succession of cold and wet summers. Well, there's a surprise, isn't it, Liz? <laughs> he uprooted his vines just before the record-breaking summer of 2020. Grapes need sun and warmth. But in Aberdeenshire, there's a research vineyard, but you'll not find shoulder-high rows of vines up there. These vines are grown in shallow trenches, which can be covered up as the weather requires it. Alan Smith up there grows Russian grapes. He reckons if the grapes can grow in Russia, 
that they can grow up in Aberdeenshire in the northeast of Scotland, but they have to be protected. The Russian grapes, they're hardy and they ripen very quickly. And if you put plastic or maybe nowadays better the canvas coverings over the top when the vines are budding, then they get the frost protection. The trenches that they grow, he grows them in are two feet wide and one foot deep. So you can imagine if the vines are growing there, they're sheltered from the wind. They've got the protection of the canvas over the tops if required. But he also uses polytunnels to grow the grapes to shelter the vines from frost. And we're seeing the use of polytunnels a lot in Scotland to protect the fruit from the weather. Alan Smith, who does this, he doesn't want to produce wine. He just wants to show that it's possible to grow grapevines in Scotland. So he's more of a, a kind of a scientist researching it. He says it's all about the frost protection. And this is the farthest north vineyard in the UK since Chateau Hebrides over on the Outer Hebrides closed its doors. But let's talk about successes. One big success in wine producing in Scotland is Care No More in Perthshire. Ron and Judith Gillis started their winery with a bottle, a book and a stick in 1987. They make fruit wines in the traditional way of fermentation, followed by at least one year of maturation. They have five types in their core range, all fruits that can be grown in Scotland, strawberry, raspberry, bramble, elderberry and oak leaf. They've added sparkling oak and elder and sparkling strawberry. These were developed for oak and elder for their own wedding and then strawberry for a friend's wedding. They also make limited editions if there's a glut of certain fruits such as blackcurrants or rhubarb. They will just develop some sort of recipe and make a wine for it. The Cars of Gowrie, where they're located, is famous or was famous for apples and pears in Victorian times. So they also produce Scottish bottled cider. At Cairn Amore, they use wild elderberries and elderflowers and have their own plantation of elder trees on site. They supply supermarkets and produce several hundred thousands of bottles every year. They've really built it up. And during COVID, they've not really stopped. They've been busy with online orders and they'll take deliveries up to 30 miles away. They're just good entrepreneurs. And their Pictish draft cider is aptly named as they discovered that underneath their site at Cairnamore is an ancient Pictish settlement. So the name came before the discovery, so it's, it's quite apt. But let's go further north, up to find the Orkney Wine Company on the Isle of Orkney. They produce a range of fruit wine and liqueurs to suit everyone. All are 100% natural, sulphur-free and entirely made by hand. All their wines are suitable for vegetarians and vegans. And interestingly enough, Liz, the company has its roots in Stranraer, which is down where we're talking was a good cheese country. In 1995, when Emil van Schaak had his first taste of homemade wine, the bug had bitten. He started making and experimenting until his house was almost filled with bubbling demijohns. I think we've all been there at some time in our lives, the bubbling demijohns. He and his family moved to Orkney quite soon afterward and he entered a home brew competition and he won. And he was so encouraged by this that he turned his hobby into a business, the Orkney Wine Company. The fruit cleaning and selecting is done manually. The fermentation process is just allowed to run its course. Chemicals are not added to stop it. 
Bentonite is used for the fining product, that's a natural product, and then the wine is filtered twice and left to mature until it's ready to be bottled. This can range from six months for Orkney White and up to three years for the elderberry, and in some cases up to ten years for some limited cask bottles. Even after bottling, the bottles are left to rest for a week or two before they are cleaned and labelled. The Orkney Wine Company working with Orkney College to develop fruit growing in Orkney. And of course, their cheese and wine gift set is very popular. You have a bottle of Orkney red blueberry wine accompanied by smoked Orkney cheddar cheese. And of course, we must mention the Isla wines. Kenneth and Helen Carter have got five unique wines made and bottled on the island island of Isla. And they are, again, the fruit wines, the rhubarb, the bramble, the things that are there. They also do a barley wine, which ties in very nicely with the whiskey industry on Isla. And one name that has kind of disappeared is Moniac Castle, the Highland wineries up near Inverness. They're no longer, the wines are no longer made at the castle up in Inverness, but they're sort of outsourced. They're produced and bottled for Highland wineries in the UK, but sadly not in Scotland. And their mead is the one that's most popular with the Lime Bay wineries. But there's a suggestion, Liz, that with climate change, as things are creeping, as the warmth is creeping steadily north, could Scotland be a wine-growing region by the end of this century? There's a thought for us. Instead of the vineyards of France and Germany and Italy, it might be the vineyards of Scotland. So have you tasted the Scottish wines? Well, Ellen, that was a positive note to finish on as I sit and look out the windows, grey clouds in the sky in the middle of May, the idea of a little global warming and some sunshine in Scotland and the actual appearance of the actual ability to grow grapes might not be such a bad thing. (laughs) But to be serious, um, we may not be able to grow grapes, but we are very, very good at growing soft fruits. I mean, that is one of Scotland's greatest products. And as you mentioned, the Cars of Gowrie between Perth and Dundee is is fabulous for the raspberries and gooseberries and blackberries, all the soft fruits that are growing there. So we can make good wines from those. But I have to say, Helen, I think while I'd take the cheeses any day of the week, I'd much prefer a bottle of French Blanc. Well, yes, you know, it's funny because the Care No More wines, which I did actually go out last night to see if I could buy a bottle just because I felt like it. It wasn't in the supermarket, although they do say they're in the supermarkets, but it wasn't in my local Tesco. So, um, but I have had it, but it's not really, for me, it's not a it's not a wine to drink with a meal. I think it would be very good at a cheese and wine party, though, because I think the, the strength of that, of that wine with the nice Scottish cheeses, it would be very nice to sip and have the cheese with it. That would be my my way of drinking it. I would still I would still drink it, Liz. Yep, you're you're right. And you you were talking about exploding demijohns. I am determined this year to make elder elderflower champagne. I've got a, a recipe from a friend, but I'm absolutely terrified. I, the bottles arrived too late last year to do it, but I'm determined that this year I'm going to try it. But I'm going to put them well out of range as they begin to mature and ferment. Have you had any accidents yourself? Well, I was just going to say, Liz, that in the early 70s, we were very much into wine making and beer making. All my friends and, and myself, we used to make that. The taste was, and it was kit, it wasn't making it from kit, but I did have one friend, Robbie, who made the most beautiful fruit wines. And he had a shed 
outside of you know, Robbie had disappeared, he was in his shed, but he would bring you a bottle of this wonderful wine that he'd made. Absolutely stunning. Sadly, Robbie's no longer with us, but the memories of his wonderful wine lives on with me. Talking about memories of the 60s and 70s, you mentioned the term cheese and wine. Doesn't that just conjure up images? So I, I reflect back on where we where we probably met Helen, which is in the small village that we live in. There's an organisation called the National Women's Register, which was for women who were perhaps staying at home, no, no careers at that time, and who got together for like-minded intellectual activity. Well, that was the idea, but it was probably more for the cheese and wine that we were getting together. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Liz. And, you know, again, when I lived up in Elgin area, but we used to have these cheese and wine parties, but they couldn't be called that because the village hall that we met in would not allow alcohol. So what we just took with us was what we called fermented fruit, which was actually in a bottle with a cork. One of your five a day. Yes. And the other memory that cheese and wine brings up, do you remember them, Liz? The hedgehogs, the cocktail sticks stuck into the cap, the half cabbage with little cubes of cheese and little pickled onions on the end. I certainly do, but I was so much more refined. We didn't use a cabbage hell. We used a, a half an orange and had little dainty oh. hedgehogs. Oh. That's very dainty. Oh, no, ours were great big walloping things, the half cabbage. But they were good fun and a good way of just mingling with people. No doubt the cabbages were there to go alongside the muckle great bottles of wine that you would be consuming. But of course, not wine, fermented grape juice. Fermented grape juice, that's right. So, well, I think we've talked our way through to perhaps having another little cheese and wine party now that restrictions are easing slightly. We could bring back the 60s and 70s with our cheese and wine parties. I just have an impression of all these people sitting up on Orkney because, as you say, the Orkney Islands are producing such quality food and drink these days. But can you just imagine them with all their Orkney cheeses on the little islands like Westray, sitting on the island of Shappensey where they produce Lerobel, an unpasteurised goat milk cheese. Can you just imagine them with all their hedgehogs still having their little (laughs) wine and cheese parties on Orkney? I wish I was there. Conjures up a beautiful picture. Well, I think it's probably time for our word of the week, Liz. Have you got a word this week? Well, I think perhaps we've had it before, but there couldn't be any other word than minger, right? A minger is something that if something's minging, it smells really strongly. It's it's got a very strong pong to it and that has been transferred across into other things including people you know so if you're out for the night out and your pal says what do you think of him and you say oh he's a minger so um the minger is a very descriptive word in scotland yes i i like it but i'm going to be a little bit more refined but i'm going to talk about our cheese and wine and we used to hear a wee perty a wee perty with it not exactly a scottish word but perhaps a word with a scottish accent a perty a party a cheese and wine party well i think that's the end of our episode liz and we shall look forward to seeing everybody next time shall we just say goodbye for now Goodbye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me.
Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.